exhausted. I understand that we're supposed to be mom's taxi in the overall scheme of things, especially when there's not a dad involved. Whether you've lost them from death or through divorce or some other way. But this is ridiculous. For an entire year, I had a crazy schedule. I would have to get my daughter to daycare by 6 a.m. so I could round on my patients and be at the office in time. And then at noon or 12.15, I would leave my office, leave patients, or um, if I had had a chance to get lunch, which at 12.15 I hadn't, i go back to the daycare, pick her up, and take her over to the preschool, and then go back to my office, try and grab a fast lunch, see patients. At 3 o'clock, I would drop everything, even walk out of a patient's room if necessary, drive back over to the preschool, drive her from the preschool back to daycare, and uh, go back to the office, finish seeing patients, go to the hospital, finish seeing patients. And if it was six o'clock in the evening, I'd have to pick her up at preschool first and have her around with me. And then we drive home. And usually because of course it's time to get dinner, but she wants to go ride the horsey and she wants to go ride the fire engine. And I usually needed to pick something up anyway. So we'd go to the grocery store and she'd put her dollar in the bank and she'd get a little somebody coupon and a lollipop and a lot of love and praise from the bank tellers who were so excited about her savings. And uh, for a penny, she got to ride the little machine that was the merry-go-round or the little machine that was the fire engine or the little machine that was the horse. And then we go home, make dinner, bath, reading, little playtime, bed. And I would do a, maybe an hour of cleanup or something else that needed to be done, and then go to bed myself to start all over again the next morning about 4.30 to be able to be out the door at 6. It's exhausting. It is exhausting. So this situation was specific because her preschool at the daycare wouldn't allow her to be five days a week when she was three years old, I think. Um, this happened for three years old and four years old, but she wouldn't take naps. So they wouldn't let her just be at the daycare. So she had to go somewhere. So the preschool at the other facility was the best option I had. But I can tell you as much as I tried to believe it was energizing and exciting to have this crazy schedule, the bottom line was it was just crazy. It was exhausting. So it made me wonder, like, what should our parenting goals really be? How can we arrange things so that we're not killing ourselves? So today we're going to talk about the American Academy of Pediatrics General Parenting Goals and Gentle Parenting. Welcome to Single Mom MD. We bond together in this community to help single moms, both MDs and DOs, get the support we need when we need it. I'm Dr. Gail Clifford, and I'm here to help my colleagues have an easier time of it than I did. Enjoy the podcast and join us in the Single Mom MD community. American Academy of Pediatrics puts out guidelines, I think every year, and they're general parenting goals. They provide guidance and recommendations for parents and caregivers on a wide range of topics related to child health and development. And so some of their general parenting goals include providing a safe and nurturing environment for children. It wasn't until I re reviewed these recommendations 
that I saw that the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends keeping children riding in the car in a rear-facing seat for as long as possible, even up to the age of four. And I don't know about you, but my daughter's legs were too long for that, probably past the age of two. But I do think it's worth considering. The American Academy of Pediatrics even says, quote, if you are past the car seat stage of parenting, congrats, end quote. Now, I think that's funny. But the important thing here is while you're in the thick of it, in the time of your child's life when car seats are necessary, whether rear facing, front facing, or in booster seats, check for any new car seat laws that may be going into effect in your state every year just to maintain not only your compliance legally, but knowing what's best for your child's safety. And then, of course, check back with the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines. Their second guideline was to promote healthy physical and emotional development. For me, the easiest way to do this was to get outside more. I find that spending time outdoors can be a great mood booster and help families get the needed physical activity and vitamin D while enjoying time in nature. So spending time outside also gives your child's eyes a healthy screen time break. Um, Fortunately for me, iPads weren't the bane of my daughter's they were the ba- wouldn't be the bane of my existence because they weren't around when my child was little, little. But it gives the kids a break from screen time. It runs off the extra energy. Um, and that, I think, does help them sleep better at night. The third goal from the American Academy of Pediatrics is encouraging positive behavior and discipline techniques. When you think of positive behavior and discipline techniques, I suspect that creating a family disaster kit isn't the first thing on your mind. Um, But maybe it should be. It can be scary to think about how disasters like wildfires or hurricanes or tornadoes could affect our communities. But being ready is one way to be less afraid. With your children, assemble the necessary supplies of the disaster. kit. If disaster strikes, it is important that you're prepared. This is a great time to discuss where each child should be and what they should do in case of emergency, especially if they are separated from you. So just make sure you have a plan. For evacuation, whether it's a fire in your own home or a tornado during a school day, if cell phones are not working, where will you be able to find each other? Identify a place both near the school and near your home, where your children know that you will be expecting them in case of emergency, where you can't get to them um, directly at home or at school. Please reassure them this is not meant to be a frightening practice, just a practical one. If they understand the importance of preparing for emergency, not only do I kind of feel that it's less likely to happen, but if it does, they will be less frightened at the time. For me, a really practical example of this was a fire ladder in my daughter's bedroom. God forbid there was a fire in the house. She knew to stick the ladder out the window and climb down and meet on the corner across the road. I was lucky she never used it to get out when she was a teenager. I understand that. But by the time she was a teenager, we were living at a house where she was in a bedroom on ground level anyway. But knowing that she would be able to get out in case of fire was critical. When we lived in Washington State, the other big problem was um, volcanoes because Mount St. Helen had erupted in Washington State and she erupted again during the time we lived there. 
So it was important that all of the kids have a, um, I guess it was a Ziploc bag, a gallon bag that was filled with everything from a heat resistant blanket to enough food and water to get them through, I think it was two days. So it was important for her to have this and it was important for my peace of mind that she had it. Academy of Pediatrics General Parenting goals number four is building strong parent-child relationships through communication and involvement. Now, I'm sure all of us have some ideas for what this means, so please feel free to write your idea down in the comment section below this podcast. But for me, one of the important things was setting aside time to cook as a family. It remained valuable for us, not only in building relationships through communication and involvement, but also teaching my daughter and my foster children adult skills. Many families will bake together during the holidays, but if you involve the children in meal prep and even recipe selection, maybe even going to the grocery store together, then work together to cook, it improves not only math skills, but you can keep the fun going. Whether you set aside special times to cook together as a family, for example, on the weekends, or if you make it into an every night occurrence, you can get even the pickiest of eaters interested in trying new and healthy foods. If your child has special dietary needs, consider whether the entire family needs to eat that way, or if two different meals can be made or selected. Your child may feel more accepted, if the allergy or medical issue can be adapted for the entire family, but the other children don't necessarily need to follow those restrictions when they're outside the home. Most importantly, building these skills to learn how to cook and use it as a family together helps our relationships grow by giving us both quality and quantity time. The fifth recommendation from the AAP is promoting healthy sleep habits. Many of my favorite memories from my daughter's childhood include the bedtime routine. After a fun and very splashy bath, uh, lotion and cuddles and reading together put her in the right mood to get to sleep. It was probably even better when she was old enough to read and would often read me to sleep. It wasn't very difficult in those days with the shifts I was working. Sometimes I'd wake up in her bed and have to make a choice about whether or not to make the effort to get back into my own. But setting aside time each day to read um, has brain-boosting benefits for your children, and I think it's calming for us parents as well. It strengthens that special bond between you and might just make your child a lifelong reader. It will also give them a heads up or a head start when they get to kindergarten. I was surprised that my daughter had changed when we moved from Illinois to Louisiana from a reading readiness kindergarten to a reading kindergarten and it was the end of the year when we moved so it was a huge problem that created a lot of tension and drama and that was even with reading to her she was just a, a little later getting to the point where she was reading than those other kids in Louisiana but read with your kids it has all kinds of benefits the sixth um, goal the American Academy of Pediatrics has for parenting is to limit screen time and promote physical activity some people call this do good digital. Be aware of what your child is watching on TV and online and make sure to devote some time to research age-appropriate media, especially when they're small. Make a family use plan and try to prevent gaming from becoming unhealthy. Remember that screen time shouldn't always be alone time. 
understand what they are doing, and maybe even be a part of it. Many people recommend confirming that physical activity and outdoor time exceeds their screen time every day. That sounds like a really reasonable compromise to me, but you might have some more challenges with this if you consider the screen time that they have already at school or their homework time. But when children would prefer to be inside on their phones or other devices rather than being outside in nature, maybe that is the way that we get to negotiate with them for how much outside time they actually need to have. The American Academy of Pediatrics general parenting goal is to ensure access to regular health care and vaccinations. As physicians, we all understand the need for vaccinations and the science behind it. Most of us do agree and believe that vaccines are the best way to protect ourselves, our children, and other loved ones from viruses. It also protects the community at large. So be sure to be in touch with your pediatrician to ensure your children are up to date on all re recommended immunizations and ask any questions you may have. Remember, just because you are a physician doesn't mean you should be your child's physician. Utilize your education to ask more intelligent questions but don't ever be afraid to ask questions that concern your child's health to make sure they get exactly what they need. I remember when my daughter was little, very little, she was an infant still, and she was just losing weight and lethargic, and no one could figure out what it was. I certainly couldn't. And I had thought I was making the right choice by having her see the only true pediatrician in town who was a neonatologist. And she just kept saying, have her drink Pedialyte, have her drink Pedialyte. But I had a limp baby in my arms who wasn't drinking anything. And she would push the Pedialyte away. It was just so nasty tasting to her. And so I went to a family practitioner, a third generation uh, physician in the community. And he saw her and diagnosed C. diff. And I'm like, but she has no diarrhea. And he said, it's not necessary. I had no idea. At that point, I was so young. I was still in my 20s. I'd been out of medical school, but I was surgery and internal medicine trained. And I'd never seen a single person with C. diff who hadn't had diarrhea. But sure enough, she had C. diff. So it was critical that I got her not only to a physician, but to the right physician. Because that neonatologist was a complete waste of time and would have let my daughter die. Getting to the family practitioner who actually took the time to figure it out and send the right test. Uh, made all the difference and saved her life. The eighth parenting goal is to create a supportive and inclusive family environment that promotes diversity and acceptance. So I think it's important that we not only mind our mental health and practice self-care, but to take, to realize that when you're taking better care of yourself, you're better able to take care of your children. Now you might be saying, what does this have to do with an inclusive family environment that promotes diversity? Well, the first thing is that parents and children are not the same. So you could count that as diversity. The other thing is um, when you have foster kids as I did, that's enough diversity perhaps in one family. But I want you to get to the point that you really say, that you say, when am I gonna take care of myself? When was the last time you had a checkup have you been getting proper rest? Because most of us don't. Once a baby is no longer a part of your body, it's easy to forget that tight association between how you care for yourself and how you care for your child's health. 
We also know that depression and anxiety can happen to moms and dads during and after pregnancy. If this is you, um, you're not alone and help is near. So reach out to the appropriate people to get the assistance you need, whether it's a 1-800 number or your own PCP. And it really is true that as you're taking better care of yourself, you'll be better able to handle what's going on with your kids. For example, if you ever learn that your child is being bullied, don't try and tackle the issue alone. Reach out to the pediatrician, the school officials, and even your church as you work to resolve the issue. I know when I was overly tired, there was no way I would have reached out for all that help. I just wanted to fix the problem. I'll never forget the time when we moved from my job from Washington to South Dakota. Um, we went from an excellent school in Washington where my child thrived to a truly mediocre school where my daughter was bullied. And even when my daughter was protecting the teacher's own children from those same bullies, the teacher was one unwilling and unable to control fourth grade girls. And it wasn't until after I transferred my daughter during fifth grade that the school board was finally involved. And then they purposely split up this gang of four girls before sending them to the different middle schools in the region. It did me no good to speak to the parents individually. They were bullies too. They taught their daughters exactly what they wanted them to know. It's a terrible state of affairs, but I learned it was one that I could not overcome on my own. So I needed to just plot my daughter's escape. And she was much happier at the private school than she ever was at that public school. I hope you find the review of the American Academy of Pediatrics General Parenting Goals helpful. I am trying to be mindful of your needs as I develop the single mom MD community. We speak not only about the importance of managing time and money, but also mindset, parenting, self-care, and build this community to develop into what we each need to support each other as it grows. So I think this leads fairly easily into what I've learned about gentle parenting. I um, hadn't realized until I was doing some research for a website that I'm collaborating with and cooperating with that um, I'd actually been following gentle parenting without realizing it. So while there are many parenting styles, gentle parenting, one of the most popular approaches, sometimes known as attachment parenting, emphasizes building a strong emotional bond between parent and child. This promotes positive communication and understanding. Parenting sometimes feels like a roller coaster with its many ups and downs, and every parent, I know you do, wants to raise their children in the best possible way. So this lifelong quest to be an even better parent to your child than your parents were to you requires patience, persistence, cooperation, kindness, and the desire to live your life as a role model to your children. That way your children are likely to develop lovely character traits like kindness, honesty, self-control, independence, and self-direction. So how do you choose what parenting method to follow to get there? I think the most important thing as usual is to educate yourself. Gentle parenting is a style that focuses on empathy, connection, and respect between the parent and child. While many parents find this approach to be effective and rewarding, there are also potential drawbacks to consider. So today we will also discuss what gentle parenting is, the pros and cons of it, and some personal examples that I hope you can relate to. My time as a stepmom, a bio mom, and foster parent helped to raise nine children and gave me plenty of experience to share. So how would you define gentle parenting? Gentle parenting is a style of parenting that focuses on building a strong and loving relationship between parent and child that prioritizes empathy, 
kindness, and respect. Gentle parenting involves treating your child as an individual with unique needs, wants, and feelings. It encourages parents to listen to their child, to understand their emotions, and respond with compassion. So some people think very mistakenly that gentle parenting is permissive parenting. Gentle parenting still requires discipline. Discipline is a crucial part of it. And gentle parenting discipline is about teaching your child right from wrong without resorting to physical punishment or shaming. It is about setting clear boundaries and expectations and helping your child understand the consequences of their actions. I learned that gentle parenting discipline involves positive reinforcement, such as praising your child for good behavior and redirection, such as guiding your child to a more appropriate activity if they're headed towards not so good behavior. It also involves natural consequences, such as allowing your child to experience the consequences of their actions. So if the child throws the toy and you've already explained this to them, so that, you know, set the rule, set the boundary, they will not be able to play with that toy for the rest of the day. There are many pros of gentle parenting. And one of the most significant benefits that I found in gentle parenting is that it helps build a strong and loving relationship between parent and child. By prioritizing empathy and connection, parents who practice gentle parenting are more likely to have children who feel heard and understood. And this is especially important for children as I experienced with my foster kids who didn't have a solid foundation in their original home. The emphasis here establishes the parent's authority with gentle methods that foster a safe and peaceful home environment. Avoiding that physical and mental injury while being consistent, persistent, and relentless about setting structure around discipline, family time, meals, school, and expectations, allows children to grow into wonderful citizens who want to continue these skills in families of their own. Another benefit I found of gentle parenting is that it promotes emotional intelligence. By encouraging children to express their emotions, parents who practice gentle parenting are helping their children develop the emotional skills they need to navigate life's challenges believe that gentle parenting promotes better behavior. By using positive reinforcement and natural consequences, parents who practice gentle parenting are teaching their children to make better choices. So instead of punishing their children for misbehavior, they guide them towards better behavior. If a little one is throwing blocks at the wall, for example, why not provide him with a bucket to aim for instead and have him start working on his basketball shots? Now, there are problems with gentle parenting. Um, as many benefits as it has, it does have a share of problems. One of the main criticisms of gentle parenting is that it can tend towards permissive behavior. Parents who practice gentle parenting may be hesitant to set boundaries or enforce rules for fear of hurting their child's feelings. This can lead to children who are not well-behaved and who have difficulty adjusting to rules and expectations in other areas of life. I really believe that it's those parents that need to be re-educated because setting the boundaries for the children is part of what I found helped them feel so safe. Another problem with gentle parenting is that it is very time-consuming. It requires a lot of time and effort on the part of the parent. It involves listening to your child, understanding their emotions, and responding with compassion. This can be really challenging for parents who have busy schedules or who are dealing with other stressors. I don't know any of us that are our best selves when we're exhausted. My kids always tell me that the easiest example they have for this is when they witness other people counting at their children 
By this, I mean something like, I'm going to give you 10 seconds to stop whatever they're doing. One, two, three. My kids will just look to me and laugh. Their experience is that if they're acting badly or in a way I won't tolerate, they'll stop immediately with either a look from me, whether it's across the room or wherever. Or if that's not sufficient, I get up and I move towards them and then they stop. It is harder when you're tired, to be sure, but it is so important. Can you imagine giving children more time to misbehave or continue undesirable behavior ever creating a better behaved child? I've never seen it work that way. And please don't ever threaten a child with a punishment you're not willing to carry out. Think first. My family spends a lot of time at theme parks. We hear parents threatening their kids regularly. I'll take you back to the hotel if you don't start behaving. Yet I have never seen one single parent follow through on that threat. They don't want to miss the opportunity of that roller coaster or that ride. They don't want to leave the theme park. They've spent a lot of money to get to and and get into and get on a ride. So do yourself a favor and never threaten a child with something you're not willing to carry out as a punishment or consequence. Make the consequence immediate so they remember and attach it to the undesirable behavior, especially when they're young. Make it memorable, but make it commensurate with the offense. If the kids are arguing, maybe make them gentle hug each other. If they said something unfortunate or snapped at you, maybe a prayer will work. When my bio daughter was four years old, we were at Walt Disney World for the first time and standing in line when she said something I didn't appreciate. Honestly, can't even remember what it was. We were both tired, and truthfully, I should have taken us back to the hotel for a nap. But I'd spent a lot of money to get there, and we had a very limited time at the parks, and I didn't want to miss anything. Her consequence was to say 10 Hail Marys. People stared, but I persisted. She started with an angry look on her face and a pouty, Hail Mary full of grace in her cute little yellow dress and tiny white strap sandals. I can still picture that outfit today. But by the middle of the second prayer, she was smiling and swinging her arms. Take it as divine intervention, if you will, but it rescued the day. Another problem with gentle parenting is that it may not be effective for children with behavioral or emotional challenges, such as ADHD or oppositional defiant disorder, those that benefit from seeking additional medical intervention. If you suspect this is true for your child, please be sure to speak to your pediatrician and any behavioral health practitioner they recommend. For some parents, a challenge with gentle parenting is the emphasis on constant availability and responsiveness to your child. If this leads to your own lack of self-care, it can ultimately be detrimental for both you and your child. Finally, gentle parenting may not be the best approach in a situation where the child's safety is at risk. In these situations, as I discovered, more assertive and protective parenting may be necessary. I'm Dr. Gail Clifford, and I look forward to hearing from you with questions and comments about this and future podcasts. Join the Single Mom MD community by clicking on the link below. We welcome you with regular engagement and personalized attention to your specific questions. When you think of additional topics you'd like covered on this podcast, contact me via social media at Single Mom MD. was spanked six times in her life, and I remember each time vividly. Each and every time was related to her being very young and doing something that risked her own life, like walking into a busy highway when her grandmother was supposed to be watching her. I would have rather spanked grandma, of course, but didn't have that option, so I had to make the impression on my own child. 
or leaving the house at age six when I'd fallen asleep and allowing herself to be lured into a stranger's house to see a turtle. She was so adamant. She's like, but mom, he didn't say, do you want to see a puppy? There was just no other way at that age to make the point as vigorously as a sharp rap on the rump, but it really did hurt me as much as it hurt her. I'm a firm believer in following up on research and so have a few suggestions for gentle parenting books if you're interested in learning more. Um, you can check them out at your library, on a library app, on your phone, like I use Libby, or buy them at Amazon or your favorite bookstore. Some of the most popular books include Gentle Measures in the Management and Training of the Young by Jacob Abbott, which is available on Libby uh, by Overdrive on my phone. Parenting with Love and Logic by Foster Klein and Jim Fay. No Drama Discipline and also The Whole Brain Child by Daniel J. Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. The Gentle Parent Positive Practical Effective Discipline by L.R. Nost. Peaceful Parent Happy Kids by Laura Markham. So I want to share some of the examples of gentle parenting from our home and the results that I found. When I was a foster mom in Washington State, a commercial ran that said, not everyone can be a foster parent, but everyone can help a foster child. And I found that's really true. And it relates to how we discipline all our children, biologic, step, foster, maybe even our own grandchildren. When I was growing up in the 1970s, it wasn't uncommon for mom to use a wooden spoon to spank us when we misbehaved. Now people can get arrested for spanking their children in public. There's always been a line between discipline, even physical even when physical, and abuse. Yet with practice, patience, and experience, we can learn how to get our children to behave the way we want and need them to without violence, shame, or any physical or mental distress. That's my take on gentle parenting. When foster children entered our home, whether placed urgently by the state or respite for their own foster families, understanding the rules was critical. One of the most important things right away was an all-encompassing hug. They were always warned that it was coming, so it wasn't a surprise, and yet as soon as I felt the child relax in my arms, I knew it was going to be okay and sensed that they did as well. Over a family meal after the child had unpacked her bag, we discuss expectations. Foster care, in a way, made it easy to be a gentle parent since any form of physical discipline is strictly prohibited. Having other children in the home helped tremendously. The bonus child would look to my own daughter and mirror her behavior. She was raised in a nonviolent household before gentle parenting became the in phrase and helped emulate my parenting style with our new family members, using words, avoiding shaming, being present in the moment and always supportive of the individual while not tolerating inappropriate behavior remains key. This helped the girls that were in our home as foster children really start more of a positive self-talk than I think they'd ever experienced before. While gentle parenting can be an effective approach for many families, it is important to carefully consider its potential disadvantages and limitations and to adapt parenting strategies as needed to meet the individual needs of both you and your child. Let us know what other parenting topics you'd like me to cover in this podcast in the uh, box below, and I'm happy to take a look at it. We'll talk more soon.